Seven blessings, everyone. Seven blessings. It is I, Yogi, a.k.a. Archmaster Buzzkill, and the long hiatus, the long night is finally over. It's a new episode of Through the Moon Door, and I got myself a wonderful guest to celebrate the spooky season of Halloween-ish time. <laughs> I don't know exactly when this comes out. It's Archmaster Emma. Two Archmaesters. Gather together. It's the conclave here to debate stuff. Hello, hello. Emma. Hello, hello. How are so you? glad to have you. Yeah, thank you for inviting me on. It's uh, nice to be able to chat. Uh, it's been a while since I've spoken about Game of Thrones things. Hmm. Yeah. It's just. It's nice to be. It's nice to to do this again. I don't know how I how I managed to get all these great guests on the podcast, but I, I somehow I I, I always find someone great let's go last it's a episode great podcast. <laughs> last episode was way back in uh, it's pride month june or july june right june i think oh my god i'm gonna get my gay membership card revoked for not knowing this but same same yeah i've had <laughs> i've had I've had, uh, I've had rohan on uh to talk about the all the gays of of game of thrones and that was a while back. And Rahan's a great guest. She was on twice, and her her episodes always bring in the, the big numbers. I don't know why. I guess she's just popular and amazing and all that stuff. And Rohan actually recently, yesterday I think, published a, a new essay along with Lo the Links, mm-hmm. where they talked about Cersei uh, Lannister and her relation to gender, her gender trouble, if you will. If you look up Cersei Lannister gender trouble, you will probably find it. It's a really good essay that I would like to recommend here at the beginning of the show because before we get into our own discussion because I really don't have anything of my own to plug here right at the beginning other than maybe you know what a while back in that Rohan episode that was during Pride Month I also plugged uh, one of my friends GoFundMe campaign which is still up kind of stagnated sadly though a lot of people from the the Aswell fandom donated to it which is great uh, in the meantime, there's been a second friend of mine who also lives in the UK who has also started a GoFundMe. So I might add those two back to uh, whenever I post this on, on Twitter. So if anyone's got some loose change and wants to help some some poor uh, trans people in the UK out paying for stuff, because it is a pretty fucked up uh, time they're having over there at the moment. <laughs> so, yeah, so I'm sure as, you're aware yeah, as a, a um, local. <laughs> so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If yeah. you do live in the UK as well, do remember to write to your MP and your local councillors and tell them that, you know, trans healthcare is actually important and maybe they should support it instead of arguing on Twitter yeah. because TERFs. Uh, that, that would be a great, great doing, thing to do doing as anything, well. <laughs> doing anything instead of arguing on Twitter is usually a good call and a good advice, especially in this time. So yeah, please, if you'll see the, the GoFundMes when they're out, just give some some money. Uh don't be don't be confused when you don't see my name on the donation thing because I don't have a credit card. <laughs> but I did trust me. I did I did give money in other ways. I'm just I'm not asking you, even though I didn't give anything myself. Not that everyone's thinking that. So, what are we here to talk about? I said at the beginning of the the episode that it's 
nearing Halloween. It's the month of Halloween, October. And so I thought we should talk about something spooky, something creepy. And A Song of Ice and Fire has no no shortage of, of creepy and, and disgusting and horrible, nasty things. But few things are more horrible, nasty, and creepy and disgusting than everyone's favorite array of vaguely problematic stereotypes, the Brave Companions, mm-hmm. uh, everyone's favorite sellsword company. They uh, are featured in the books fairly heavily, as I noticed when I was rereading them. I kind of forgot about the later bits where Brienne takes on uh, some of them in A Feast for Crows. They're, they're really in there a lot and mentioned a lot and stuff like that, more so than you would pick up on in a, a first reread. And I, while I certainly, you know, I'm aware of them, I never really gave them that much thought beyond these are, you know, your your basic, like, low-tier goons, uh, mini-boss, you would call them, tiny little villains to give Brienne something to do on her <laughs> her doomed quest in Feast for Crows and for Jamie and Brienne. And then uh, the only, like, way I ever thought about them critically was when I was doing a bachelor's thesis about Orientalism in A Song of Ice and Fire. I actually had to cut the bit about the Brave Companions out at the end because it ended up too long. It was basically about, you know, there is some, there are some problematic aspects to the idea that the worst sort of company and, like, the worst soldiers in the army are the ones that came over from Essos and the ones that are made up of Dothraki and uh, Ibanese people and yep. Lyseni people and Tyrosh are all over the place. They're a very diverse group, which in one way I suppose is admirable. It's just also the fact that every single one of them is horrible, horrible, horrible. So, yeah. But that was sort of the extent of, like, I critiqued that aspect of it and this process of sort of, like, stereotyping people from orientally inspired cultures is what what people call othering Mm -hmm. so and then i I started talking to you this is completely separate and we were talking about ah i should really you know get get the podcast back up who could i invite what could i talk about and then you came to me with this idea you said hey you know i'm i have this this way of reading the brave companions that some other people have, uh, they see them as a parallel or a sort of mirroring. Uh, you can explain it better than I can, but it's like the, that they kind of are symbolic of the others. Now, not others as in Orientalist horrible stereotypes, but the literal, the others, the, the ice zombie monster things. Yeah. And I thought that's interesting that we both kind of think of them as others or othered, just in kind of different, different ways. Yeah. So that is an interesting thing. So I thought this episode is called Other Others because we're talking about mm-hmm. the Brave Companions, not the Others, who also would have made a great subject for an Halloween-centered episode. But the Brave Companions are a bit more colorful, I think. So why don't you lead us in with your approach to reading the Brave Companions? Uh, sure. So the Brave Companions are an interesting and incredibly disturbing group. Um on the whole. Um, And they seem to have a lot of very symbolic characteristics. Um, So the way that I approach the symbolism in the series is that I feel that George R. Martin has like filtered most of his archetypes into either Night's Watch characteristics or Others characteristics or sort of Last Hero versus Night's King kind of thing. 
Um, and you can see this in a lot of different places in the series. Um, Bronsteris, who's uh, posted some essays on my website, which is Red Mice at Play, um, has gone into uh, some of this in his White and Black essay, um, investigating the, the duels and the trial by combat scenes in the series and has found quite a lot of this sort of one person is definitely a Night's Watch person and the other person is definitely representing the others um and it allows for a lot of layering and subtext to particular scenes like uh Bronn in the Veil um is I mean we all know Bronn he's not a very nice person but he is symbolically a member of the Night's Watch when he's fighting Servardis Egan. So I think it gives like quite an interesting type of characteristic um, to sort of have like a hero person be particularly evil or the counterpoint to that, like Jon Snow gains a lot of like Night's King and other symbolism while he's with the wildlings, but we know that he's a good guy-ish. Um, so it sort of adds that sort of interesting layer. However... Uh, sometimes you just need the symbolism to just be there. Um, and George does this a lot with sort of ancillary characters like the Brave Companions who can just be there and be evil, um, which is kind of kind of what he does um, in a lot of different scenes. So that's sort of the broad overview of sort of how I came to the Brave Companions as the others. Yeah, this is um, it's interesting that you bring up this idea that George R. R. Martin's obviously very known for his his mantra for writing is the human heart in conflict with itself, and he's created all these morally grey, ambiguous characters. But then he also just sometimes comes out with people like the Brave Companions, who are about as like D and D campaignishly evil as you can get. But yeah. you know, it's not like people like that don't exist in the real world. You know, there are some very clear inspirations, I think, of the types of war crimes that the Brave Companions commit to like what the what like the german army did in world war ii this is goes back to even the game of thrones when they this was the brave, brave companions this was just the the lannisters in general when the peasants are brought before eddard in the throne room and they talk about how they were locked in a wooden keep and it was set on fire and then they shot that they shot the people who were trying to climb out that's pretty exactly like the kind of stuff that the ss used to do when they were you know raiding and destroying the, the all the slavic countries so it's definitely inspir- some definite inspirations there from you know some of the most evil people regimes that existed in the real world. So that's very clearly the, the case. And I like also like this idea that you said that every duel sort of in the in the show has a, a Night's Watch and an others component. So that like all the little fights in some way are representative of this the, the great big fight that's going to at some point in the Winds of Winter, which will be published. I hear next week. Um, <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, but uh, they, yeah, it's a great duel that's going to uh, happen at, at some point. And uh, yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's, it's, it's always, I always think it's great to give more depth, even to these, these, the bloody mamas who seem so shallow and, and one note to some people who, who may be reading it for the first time or not, maybe not reading it very, very, uh, deeply distinctly so what is some of this you mentioned obviously the symbolism so what is like some symbolism that concretely associates in your opinion the brave companions in the books with the others what are some of the parallels that you can find in the text to support that theory uh yeah so like one of the most obvious ones is that 
a large number of them appear to be consistently associated with cold and ice, uh, which seems pretty, pretty othery, pretty long night. Um, so one example of this is when uh, the Bloody Mummers decide that Jamie doesn't need his sword hand. Um, the, dis- the specific description given to the um, Iraq as it sort of chops off his hand is that it shivered down. So that's okay, we've got pretty chilly there. Um, then you've got like the capturing of Septon Ut so that when um, a different, like after Gregor Clegane is sent to um, like dispatch the bloody mummers because Tywin's had enough um most of them just run away um and the brotherhood without banners catches up to one of them septon up but and um the wind there blows cold and we know that the cold winds are rising is just a by byword for hey the others are around um similarly kyburn when he's down in king's landing and he's got like cersei's favor um he is busy doing all of his Frankenstein murdering of people to create a zombie. And the cells were bitter cold. Even the torches shivered. Um, So again, you've got this cold imagery as he's busy, like resurrecting people and creating his own version of a white. Like that is just, Hey, it's really cold. And we make whites when it's cold. Like, so altogether, this just feels like very much like a, Hey, necromancy and cold and, um, yeah, it's, this seems to be a sort of coalescing of some uh, cold symbolism. Yeah, I could definitely see George going for that kind of parallel on purpose because obviously the books are called The Song of Ice and Fire. So motifs of cold and hot and fire and ice are pretty common in the books in general. And fire tends to be more so representative of goodish, and then ice more so of badish. Even though you have the Starks, who are maybe, I'd say the most emotionally stable family, maybe in, <laughs> in Westeros. Maybe not like the, the best in terms of morally good. You might make a case for that as well. But even they are like uh, through Jon Snow, who who's like our like sort of like with along with Danny, the kind of like Azora High. Mm-hmm. prototype obviously the great warrior pro- destined to defeat the others and um yeah so that whole uh thing of the fire versus ice good versus evil even though people like to say the books aren't about simplistic stuff like good versus evil in a way they really kind of are yeah you like uh, yeah so like one of my major sort of meta like big like frameworks for analyzing the series is that we know George R. R. Martin is in dialogue with Tolkien. Like he's said it himself in multiple um, So Spake Martins that he, you know, is is riffing on sort of the fantasy greats. And that is very archetypally a good versus evil story. Um, whereas, and this sort of goes back to what I was saying about the sort of symbolism allowing for those additional sort of subtextual layers. Like, you can give someone the character, the symbols of being the hero. You give them the symbol of the burning sword, um, which is like something that George R. Martin has like brought up like in Azor High. But like, what does it mean to be that hero? If you as a person are an absolute piece of crap, like what does it mean for you to have these hero symbolism, hero symbols? Can we still call you a hero? Um, And I think that is going to come up a lot, especially as we progress more towards like the actual War for the Dawn redux. Um, And so, 
yeah, I think that's that's sort of one of the major frameworks that I sort of come to this series with. It's sort of we know there is a good versus evil element that he's playing with. And I think that he puts that mostly in the symbolism to then play with sort of characterizations and, and really dig into what heroism and good moral good versus moral evil is. Yeah. Why it's certainly true that you could well you'd be hard pressed to find any like person in in the books who's pure good you can make a good case that the others are pure evil unless we get more context about them that will add some kind of nuance to their to their motives but uh so i mean we don't see much of the others in the mm-hmm. books at all considering that they're supposed to be the main the main sort of driving threat but what we do see of them is mainly in obviously the prologue for a game of thrones mm-hmm got that one Sam chapter in uh, Storm of Swords and then the yeah. prologue, but though that's not even really featuring the others. They just kind of show up at the end. Mm-hmm. So if we look at that, especially the prologue in A Game of Thrones yeah. and the way we see the others there and the way they're described, what are sort of, do you see any parallels between that description and the way they, they, they act and operate and are described with the way that some of the, the brave companions are described? 100%. So like, this is another reason why I think sort of some of the symbolism is there is because George can't show you the monster all the time. It stops being scary if you show the monster all the time. That's the secret of making good horror is you don't show the monster. Yeah, it's Jaws, ha- the Jaws principle. Exactly. Yeah. So how do you share what your monster is if you can't do that? Well, the symbolic motifs are really, really useful. And so there are like quite a lot of scenes where... Um, the brave companions will do something particularly othery. So just as an overview of what the sort of prologue is, the Night's Watch, Night's Watch Rangers wander through the woods. So um, Sir Waymar and Will go into the clearing. Will climbs the tree. Waymar duels the other. Um, and then uh, he gets killed. Will comes down, is killed by the white. Um, and then the one of the sort of big grand appearances of the brave companions in a storm of swords is when they just suddenly appear out of nowhere while jamie and brienne are dueling one another and in that jamie and brienne are wandering through the woods in the riverlands uh there's some sort of tension there like will garrett and waymar are sort of tense while they're wandering through the haunted forest jamie keeps trying to fight brienne all the time and then they do end up fighting um and then uh there's one like really key parallel is that like will when he's in the tree whispers a prayer to the nameless gods of the wood jamie prays for the others to take brienne because uh like he's just really mad that she's beating him and then all of a sudden the brave companions appear and all of a sudden the others appear in the prologue so you see like there's a lot of like beats that are being hit with like wandering through the forest there's tension they're fighting pray to the others, someone appears. Um, Either the others or the brave companions themselves. Mm. Um, And that happens again when Brienne wanders through the woods uh, to get to the Whispers, or when Brienne is wandering through the Riverlands to get to the inn. (laughs) This just reminds me how much wandering Brienne does in these books. A lot of wandering, yeah. (laughs) But it also pegs Brienne as a pretty... uh, nifty like last hero character which i really need to dig into um but yeah so mm. she's wandering through places all the time and uh 
just appears uh, like people just appear out of nowhere all the time and start fighting her. Um, yeah. So... <laughs> yeah, you know, it's really what's really interesting to me about that is I just realized this mm-hmm. that um, so Waitmar and Garrett have pretty strong. Uh, they have pretty strong Jamie Brienne energy. Sort of the way that so Waymar is this kind of douchebag. He makes all these quips, and he thinks he's oh, you know, he's the he's the I don't know the, a good idiom in English. I can't think of one right now. You know, he thinks he's the best, greatest, yeah. best, so much better than than Brienne. And the same way that so Waymar belittles like Jared, and Jared has all these gruff mm-hmm. remarks, and he he doesn't really take any of 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 his bullshit. And that's very similar to the way that Brienne and and I guess maybe you can throw the Sir Cleos in there, the third yeah. wheel. That's kind of what Will is a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but he, he's not he's not alive anymore when they when they poor Sir Cleos. I mean, he was he was a bit of a tool, but he didn't deserve what happened to him. Yeah. And um <laughs> yeah, you could you could actually make a little bit of a, a Will comparison with him just because he's a bit of a third wheel in this like dynamic. Because even though he's the, he's the POV in the prologue, you really get the sense that the, the tension between Garrett and Waymar is what really drives mm-hmm. the the tensions in the, in the chapter early on. He's more of a spectator, the way that most of the, the prologue and epilogue characters usually are. Yeah. And um, yeah, and another thing that I that I noticed is that you said that the brave companions, they come out of the woods and they start laughing, which is exactly what the White Walkers do when they come out of the woods because yeah. they also laugh mm-hmm. at Sir Waymar, yeah. which is something that I always found interesting and something that they cut from from the show yeah. where we never hear them laugh in the show. They're very serious, <laughs> but I think this idea of them being sort of humored and, and making fun of Sir Waymar for standing up to this one guy, I always found it very interesting about sort of how they're very different, different characters or a different kind of evil as a, as opposed to the show. Because you really get the sense that they could have just stepped in there and finished Sir Waymar at any point. They just let him duel it out with this one guy because they knew he couldn't win, and then they were laughing at him. And that's the kind of it's like this this kind of like toying with Sir Waymar is is a is really a kind of evil that's very similar to the stuff that the brave companions do who always also enjoy you know um messing with their with their victims before they kill them yeah very the much cat. so yeah and and yeah. in particular your point there about how uh, the others sort of are watching in a sort of mocking sense you also get that when uh during the no chance and no choice moment when brienne's at the end and she's got to face off against Rorge, um all of the rest of the the whatever they are now remnants of the bloody mummers um they they stand back and watch the show and they're specifically described as the others in that sentence it's the others stood back to watch the show which i think is a very um i know other is a pretty ubiquitous word in the english language but mm-hmm, it also yeah. like is very very pointed if we sort of have a look at sort of the amount of symbolism that is there that sort of points to the brave companions being this sort of other figure um yeah, I mean George likes playing with this with this the word other yes. even in the Game of Thrones prologue because I, I think he even says a very similar line about the others, capital O, who stand back to watch the fight. It says the others stood and watched or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And but I, I, think not, that I can't remember if he capitalized it in that sentence or not. Because they are um, like both the others as in the other White Walkers, and they're also the others. So that's really uh, he likes doing that stuff. Uh, yeah, I think he did capitalize it, but um, 
I think the the similarity in these scenes and the very pointed replication of like here is a one-on-one fight where the night's watch person challenges the other person to a duel um it's it's very pointed to me um and I do think that there is I think it just like again takes us back to this idea of sort of this sort of overarching symbolic night's watch versus the others motif that you get running through I mean honestly it's everywhere <laughs> as soon as you see it it's just everywhere yeah. and it's not just their actions where they where they are similar there's also some uh, similarities in the appearance the way that they're described the way they look which is especially for people like uh Roj. oh no not Roj. uh biter is the one with no no nose right and the filed mm-hmm. teeth like he, that guy at a certain point you just he doesn't even like he's like Ba- barely a human biter. <laughs> he's like a half animal, uh, as much as of of a, a white walker or like like a fairy tale monster as you're gonna get in a. And then also other people like Shagwell, for example, the fool. He behaves almost more like an animal than a, a normal functioning human. So it's it's uh, stuff like that. Do you know? Or I'm sure you know. <laughs> Do you, what are some other similarities in the way that the appearances of the brave companions and the the white walkers are kind of described in the books um yeah so i mean the others are sort of very much described with this sort of ethereal beauty um they're very elegant um but they're also tall gaunt and bony um and vargo hote is a man with a drawn emaciated face um and he's sort of very tall as well um you also get urswick who's sort of the second in command he doesn't uh, stick around long um, but he's called a cadaverous man um, so he's and he's got like dark blue veins in his skin which sort of gives you the idea of blue blood which we know the others have from when Sam um, shanked one <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, and there's also even the ugly ones right Raj and Biter you you know it's like oh well the others are this sort of ethereal beauty how do the ugly ones fit in well, um, as I sort of alluded to earlier, when Will whispers this prayer to the nameless gods of the wood, that is very specifically a call out to the old gods um, in George's sort of the weird first instalment uh, version of the old gods. Um, yeah. Cat calls them the nameless faceless gods of the wood. So we know that when Will utters this prayer, he's intentionally reaching out to the old, go- old gods. Um, and then the others appear out of nowhere. Um, and so, like, what is the appearance of the old gods? Well, they're a carved face in a weirwood tree. Well, if someone's got their nose slashed off, you've got the implication of face carving there. But also, like, whenever you uh, see a description of the other uh, of the old gods on the weirwood tree, it's their eyes and the mouth. The nose is not mentioned. So, does a noseless face with an eyes and a mouth only? Like, is that something? which is sort of being alluded to here by like the noseless characters in the series. Mm. Um, similarly, you have uh, Rorge and his uh, Biter, sorry, Biter's face is covered in uh, sores and they are bloody and weeping, just like the sap of a weirwood tree is like blood and they always weep tears. So I think there's a sort of, even if he's not uh, specifically... Uh, saying, hey, look at these ethereally beautiful people who are all evil. Um, (laughs) It is still, like, there is that connection there. Um, 
Yeah, That's I probably wouldn't use the word ethereal beauty to describe the likes of <laughs> Septon Ut or uh, yeah, no, Baita. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's I think Baita's one type described as like a, a, a white, pale, fleshy mm-hmm. avalanche or something like that. Not exactly ethereally beautiful, but still yeah. got the snow the snow motif and stuff going on. Yeah, it's and very that, much yeah. more of a white vibe going on mm, there. Mm, mm. <laughs> and then also, of course, you have to remember that while sure the white walkers are very ethereal and beautiful and stuff the the whites are not mm-hmm. and especially in a feast for crows after the bloody mamas have been driven out of Harrenhal and they've sort of turned into broken men and that they've kind of turned into whites because there's this idea that we get from uh, Septon Maribald's sermon that what broken men are kind of like dead men walking right they only live for that for a scrap of meat and then they they despise the gods and they don't believe in anything so, yeah, you get this idea that maybe the brave companions aren't in in the way they the appearance they don't like aren't associated with white walkers, but they are very much associated with the whites as the broken men are sort of in in general. So that's another interesting parallel. And then another another interesting parallel is that both the the brave companions and the white walkers are sort of associated with dark magic and necromancy mostly mm-hmm. through kyburn of course yes um that stuff and can you t- tell us more about that the sort of magical associations between the, the bloody mamas and the white walkers uh yeah so i mean uh kyburn um is the key one you know uh, as i mentioned earlier he has his cells where he's busy creating whites um he's in got the blue cold. eyes piercing blue eyes yeah, if uh, you believe Cersei, if you believe Jamie, he's got brown eyes. <laughs> maybe that was maybe that was George trying to put in that that um, that maybe maybe it took George a while to think of that White Walker par- parallel. Yeah, and he was like, oh, yeah. he's got blue eyes, and it's like, ah, oh, goddamn it, George. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, Jamie's not bad at perceiving things because he al- he also thought that Jane Westerling had big old baby birth and hips, which also yeah. wasn't true. So maybe Jamie just needs his eyes fixed. Jamie doesn't pay attention to anyone Jamie just himself. <laughs> Jamie's just one of those jocks who refuses to wear glasses because he doesn't want to look like a nerd. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and then Kyburn also dons white clothing while he's down in King's Landing. And that clothing is described as immaculate as the cloaks of the Kingsguard. All right, like, so he's wearing white clothes. So what? Well, Kingsguard cloaks are frequently described as being ice or snow or milk, all of which give you these sort of cold associations with them as well. So yeah, that's well, sort of... Balon's, I think, no, not Balon's one. Is it Balon? No. Who's the one that's fighting with Tyrion in the Battle of Blackwater? Boris Mount? Mandon Moore, that's it. He's he's always said to have dead eyes, and especially when they have their helmets on, it's like they're Im- like impersonal kind of shadowy white shadows, which is exactly what the White Walkers are, right? Yeah. So this, yeah. This, the Kingsguard parallels are also pretty strong with... with... Yeah, I mean, they even get mm. a Pale Shadows description in yeah. the Battle of the Blackwater sequence. Like, it's, it's on point. So, like, the Kingsguard are very definitely supposed yeah. to be, like, others' characters. So Kyburn to be associated with the Kingsguard is just reinforcing all this. So Kyburn's got his, uh, like, magic associations. But the the brave companions are also primarily associated with Kohor. Um, so Vargo Ho comes from Kohor, and this brings in all these sort of Orientalist themes that you were saying about how like evil people come from that way. Um, he also has it, a speech impediment, mm-hmm. I guess, to make him more interesting. <laughs> I don't know to make yeah. him stand out or something. Yeah, that's like just, another thing. But just they all have like the, the thing about the brave companions is they all have like. 
their thing, right? Zolo is fat. Yeah. Uh, Vago Hode's got a speech impediment. There, there's the Timian's a Dornishman, I guess. I guess yeah. that counts. <laughs> so it's like they all have like one thing to make yeah. you barely remember them. Shackwell's a fool. Mm-hmm. I always confuse Roger and Biter, which you. I mean, they come as weird. a pair. Like, he's called, I mean, he's called Biter. You'd think it'd be easy to remember who's the one with the <laughs> file teeth. I always forget if the one with the file teeth also has no nose, because I always think it's one. And because then I always forget what what's like what's what, what's Roger's deal. Mm-hmm. And he, I remember you just said he has he's got the pus weeping sword yeah. on his face, and that's just yeah. I don't know where I don't know where Jack and Agar found <laughs> those two, but uh, <laughs> yeah. It's it's an interesting one. Um, mm. But Jack and Hagar being a part of the Brave Companions, however, sort of temporarily, um, or sort of being affiliated with Roger and Piter, mm. like, is, like, that's pretty black magic, like the, yeah. the faceless men. We don't know um, if they ended up in the black cells because they were in cahoots even before mm-hmm. they they got arrested. Like, that's one of the big, I don't want to call it the mystery, but it's one of those things that we're probably never going to find out why yeah. exactly Jack and Hagar was in the dungeons of the Red Keep. Seems like a weird place for a faceless man to end up in. Yeah, uh, yeah. He's there because he wanted to be. Why did he want to be? Who knows? <laughs> only only Jack and Hagar and George R. R. Martin know why, why he wanted to be there. But yeah. yeah, so we got, yeah, obviously the Black Goat cohort mm-hmm. got all sorts of black magic. They got the bearded priests and the blood sacrifices and stuff going on over there. Yeah, um, Cohor is also like effectively when you read the description of Cohor, it's basically like George R. R. Martin needed an Ashai that was closer than Ashai, and so he was just like, yeah, let's just add another Ashai. Yeah, just closer. Like getting too big. <laughs> just just move it. It's like when he invented glass candles. He was like, ah, yeah. There's no time for Danny to go to Ashai. I guess I'll just do a, a Palantir ripoff. No one will notice. Yeah, we um... notice, George. We we know. We see you. We know what you're doing. Um... Yeah. But yeah, so like Kohor has like a ton of like quite interesting parallels. So like Kohor has is known for its gateways, um, bizarrely, but like gateways are sort of speak to this sort of magical transcendence, transcendence sort of liminality, like um, uh, like werewolves as well sort of have this sort of like you're going from one place to another. It's sort of a, a, a magical transcendence of the soul or apoth- apotheosis. Mm. Um, so that's sort of an interesting dynamic if you consider that the others seem to have this association with the werewood trees. They seem to come when called um, by like the nameless gods of the wood. So that's that's sort of an interesting yeah. thing to tie in there. Um but then there's also like child sacrifice is a big big part of the brave companions storyline so again the association with cohort they do um child sacrifice but biter eats children uh in part of the series um ut uh, septon ut is uh pedophile so that sort of goes into this you're taking like something from a child um, and then Roger and Biter, when the no chance, no chance, no choice moment comes, they're trying to get to the inn where all the orphans and all the children are, and Brienne is the one there defending the children. So you have this whole theme of child sacrifice, and that is a big, big others thing because think of Craster sacrificing his children to the gods of the woods or the cold gods, um, mm. or the tale of the Night's King, where his name was struck from history because he was sacrificing to the others so like the the idea of sacrificing something to the others um and it being a child in most cases is a huge huge part of this sort of overarching others symbolism 
Yeah. I always felt like, I mean, I get the whole having your name stricken from history and stuff, but sometimes I can't help but think that maybe they should have kept some of the details just to make sure it doesn't happen again. Probably not a great call from the Starks at the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. another that's another thing to, that's, that's for another episode I guess yeah. Uh, but yeah but I, and I, again I think that ties into sort of the nameless part of the nameless mm. faceless gods of the wood um, yeah. so I think George is trying to do something there with her, sort of having your name taken from you there's probably something about the nicknames that get given to people to be analysed in that as well like Tyrion only being or maybe he just didn't have a, maybe he just had a really boring name like Pate or Bob which is you know Mayhaps his know. name was Brandon. <laughs> Mayhaps, honestly, if it's from the north, probably it was probably mm-hmm. Brandon. Yeah, and then to bring it back to the, we talked about how obviously the there's the White Walker parallels, and then to to also not only read them as White Walkers, but also read the Bloody Mamas as Whites. Yes, and there with the Whites, there is a, a theme of puppetry. This idea of being controlled by someone else. Yes, and having having your sort of evil shadowy overlords to be in charge of you know where you go being like mindless drones basically and i believe you have something to say about that as well about the idea of the puppetry how how that associates them with the white walkers yes so this sort of builds heavily on a different of one of bronsteris's essays um about how when he was going through all those jewels and sort of saying here's a knight's watch person and here's an other's person Um, He noticed that the character who was the other figure tended to be picked and commanded. So you take the fight between Bronn and Servadis Egan. I return to this one a lot because it's very, very neat as a uh, symbolic duel. But uh, Servadis Egan is handpicked by Lysa Arryn to go and fight for Lysa on Lysa's behalf because Lysa is the one that's alleging sort of Tyrion's the bad guy um so Lysa picks Servadis she picks his weapon and then during the fight Vardis is sort of flagging like he's not doing so great Bronn's got a couple of good good hits on him and then uh Lysa just shouts out Servadis finish him and then all of a sudden the guy's like yeah okay cool (laughs) and just sort of charges at Bronn like head on and it's only like Bronn's skill that manages to get him um out of that situation so that he can kill Vardis instead so you've got this idea of um sort of commanding people um and what do the brave companions do they exist to in Westeros to carry out Tywin's commands. They are commanded on this grand chevauchee of the uh, Riverlands so that Tywin doesn't have to get his own people involved. They are sort of disavowable assets. So he commands them and they they go forth and and kill. Mm. Uh, Similarly, like... um, in the dynamic between Rorge and Biter, like their backstory, George gave in like a so spate Martin. Rorge adopts and trains Biter as a dogfighter. So like Rorge is the one who takes Biter off the streets to like get him to, to do his thing. And so he's sort of com- teaching Biter like what exactly to do in this situation and then sends him forth to do his fighting um, in these sort of the these sort of pits. And Kyburn obviously is there. He builds a fighter from scratch. He builds 
Ungregor, um, <laughs> Sir Robert Strong. And uh, as a part of that, interestingly, one of the women that he is given when Cersei is busy, like just sort of pretending this isn't quite as evil as it is, um, she hands over a puppeteer who like said something like dodgy about the Lannisters one time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so a puppeteer was directly involved in creating a puppet in that sort of symbolic sort of iteration of of the uh, of the symbolism and it's like okay so this puppeteering exists why um and a core concept of what uh, bronsteris outlined in his essay is that it's the idea of this sort of disavowable asset idea like i can keep my hands clean by getting someone else to do it I can like pretend that it wasn't me by maneuvering someone else. So Tywin doesn't accept any responsibility for all of the war crimes in the Riverlands because it was the brave companions going out on their own. So Gregor Clegane can end them. Um, similarly, um, uh, oh, that example just flew right out of my head. But yeah, so, so this is, there's this idea of sort of pretending it's not you. I mm, yeah. uh, Oh, that's the uh, Littlefinger is a key, key example. He's a very, very good Knight's King figure. And he is the one who gives the lesson to Sansa about keeping your hands clean as he is um, eating the juice from a blood orange. You keep the blood off your hands. Um, and in that chapter, he is describing how he generated the Purple Wedding. So he kept his hands clean as he's talking about keeping his hands clean, if that makes sense. Yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah, I mean it's about as on a nose as you can get. I mean he's literally eating a blood orange. Like, yes. we get it, little finger. You're smart. Jesus Christ, <laughs> leave, this, leave this child alone. Yeah, so so I think it's just it's interesting to see like maybe the others have have a role in sort of well who who is the other figure keeping their hands clean for that's an interesting Mm -hmm. question i have yet to resolve (laughs) maybe when the winds of winter comes out there'll Mm -hmm. be some material to work with next week yes and yeah that'll be on next week's episode when after Mm -hmm. the books come out so i mean so we got all this stuff and now what i'm interested in as we're nearing the end of the episode already Mm -hmm. flies by the time uh the sort of like we've, we've talked about brave companions and they're, how they're associated with the White Walkers. Now, what I'm interested in is what does that make of the people that the Brave Companions interact with, mainly J.B., Brienne, and Arya. So if you already said that Brienne is a kind of a last hero archetype when she defends yes. the children in the orphanage, mm-hmm. there's the dream that Jamie has when he sees her with a flaming sword. Yeah. Very Azora high. There are some people who speculate or kind of want... Or I guess think it would be a nice ending for Jamie's storyline if he ended up going to the Night's Watch, taking the black. He was a Kingsguard, mm-hmm. but he kind of hated being a Kingsguard. And so, and then we have Arya, who in the show killed the Night's King. So I guess that's something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe they maybe they want to something with that. And she goes obviously to to become a faceless man. She will probably have some kind of instrumental role in defeating the White Walkers. I couldn't see why else George would spend slash waste so much time in Bravos having her be mm-hmm. a, become an a faceless assassin. So why how do you think that all shakes out with well, why why are they featured in Brienne, Jamie and Arya storylines so heavily the these 
brave companions? So, um, I think there is, um, I mean, their main purpose is to juxtapose them against primarily last hero figures. Now, as I say that, um, it's important to note that a core part of all of this symbolism is transformation, moving between states, going from one thing to another to another. So I think there appears to be like mostly three stages of things. There's like the naive young person. There is in sort of dreams of summer, uh, nights of summer kind of vibe. Then you have the sort of really bitter, cynical winter motif. And then you have, uh, and that's sort of your other's person. Um, and then you have the transformation into the last hero who has a very uh, frozen fire vibe. Um, and so I go into that in a lot more detail in my Broken Man essays um, rather than the Brave Companion ones. Um, and so take Jamie's arc, for instance. He's the naive young boy, then he gets inducted into the uh, snow soldier <laughs> army um tries to do good is castigated for it and then decides he's gonna just live up to his worst uh worst ideals um commits treason with a queen who's later called a corpse um so you get the corpse queen vibe of the knight's queen knight's king he's in his winter address and their children are abominations much like Presta's children which we know go on to be others um and then he has his transformative event when he interacts with brave companions. Um, and the moment he loses his hand is um, a storm of swords, Jamie three. That's how it ends. And then the beginning is the hand is on fire and it is very much like, Hey, my hand was actually Lightbringer, And you get all of these symbolic motifs associated with Azora high, Azora high reborn um, and sort of the, the last hero um, coming from that moment onwards. So I think, the brave companions within Jamie and Brienne's storyline is very much to sort of give them the impetus to be the hero. Um, I think that will become complicated by the Brotherhood Without Banners under Lady Stoneheart, who also act as the others um, in a different iteration of the symbolism. Arya is a particularly interesting one. Um, so Arya... Uh, She effectively uh, looses Jack and Rorge and Biter during an event which is very much, it has a lot of Lightbringer associations with it. It's very weird and interesting because rather than being bringing the dawn, that seems to be a winter of her soul. And all of a sudden she's using Jack and in particular, but also Rorge and Biter get involved um, to like do a bunch of murdering. And so she's using them as tools, which is a different iteration of this sort of puppetry vibe, right? Like she is there and she commands Jacken to do her killing um, before she then goes to the Faceless Men to learn how to kill herself. Um, and so I think for Arya, they are the sort of earlier transformation process. So she, she, I think the first iteration of her contact with Jacken, Morge and Biter is that sort of transformation from the naive young girl to the sort of more cynical, heartless, bitter, wounded um, sort of winter of her soul 
before she then, and I think her exit from the Faceless Men is going to be the the breaking event that transforms her into a last hero figure. Because a lot of the time you see like a character who has a ton of others figure, others identity, um, being the person who breaks and becomes the last hero to bring about the dawn. So it gets a little convoluted, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, uh, all great points, of course, all great points. And so, I guess so for 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 my for my last thing that I think we should kind of discuss before we close her up is if we, as I think we've now established the, these parallels between Bloody Mamas and Ed Walkers. Is there anything that we can learn about the White Walkers by studying the Bloody Mamas? Do you think that there is any foreshadowing in the way that the Bloody Mamas sort of act, behave, how their story shakes out to what we will see from the White Walkers in the future, in the Winds of Winter and the Dream of Spring, which will definitely come out? Which will definitely come out. Uh, Winds of Winter is next week. Dream of Spring, like next year. Um, (laughs) Christmas. (laughs) Yes. Uh, So... I think what we can learn about the others from this is um, their relationship to power structure. Um, for instance, that the the others seem to be commanded by someone or something. They are the tools that are sent out to do the murder. Arya is sending out Jacken to kill people on her behalf. Tywin is loosing them on the Riverlands to kill people on his behalf. Um, so I think that then poses the question of, well, who is now commanding the others? Which then takes us back to, okay, the others seem to be associated with the werewolves. Is there some kind of coordination within the werewolf network, which, like some sort of magical power, which is sort of imbuing the others with some kind of command? Like, and and if so, who or what <laughs> inside the sort of, the sort of werewolves themselves? Mm-hmm. Um, and then that leads to okay well how does that then get resolved um of which there's some sort of like celtic myths around brandon's cold or bran's cauldron um where like bran blows up a magic cauldron has some associations with the werewood so maybe our bran stark blows up the werewood net uh it's interesting yeah, there's there's a lot of ways that this can go, <laughs> which is uh, very interesting. I think um, one aspect of this as well that we can see is it's not, you can't just kill the others. Like, they keep popping up bloody everywhere and they mm. carry on going. Like, Urswick, who I mentioned before, a second in command, he doesn't really appear much. He's on his way down to Old Town right now with a bunch of other brave companions like does like we still haven't got rid of all of these evil people roaming around the the roaming around westeros so is this very much like uh george martin's question of well do we do an orc genocide like is that what aragorn did to get rid of the orcs from middle earth um so like did he like kill the baby orcs in their cradles? It's like that kind of thing. Like all the little baby white walkers. Yeah. So like, what 
is it that the others are going to continue to be this threat that you have to hunt down and hunt down and hunt down that isn't going to be technically resolved, but the command structure may go, and then you deal with Saruman, a.k.a. probably Cersei, Euron, Fagon, or someone. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and it's sort of, again, going back to that dialogue with Lord of the Rings. So I think, yeah, it's not cut and dry. I do this mostly for fun to see what patterns I can see <laughs> and don't have great ideas for what comes next. But I think yeah. that there's a lot of interesting implications that we can draw out and theorize about. Yeah, these are very, certainly very interesting, very in- interesting speculations, and they just make me want. They just make me want to have the next book. Yes, next Even week. More next, next week. Next week. <laughs> We've waited so long; we can wait that much longer. Well, Emma, thank you so much for coming on the show. Great first appearance, if I may say so. Oh, um, and you. I hope hope you'll be back someday for some some other episode about some other thing. Uh, really changed my because I was always kind of. I was always kind of shitting on the brave companions for being not very interesting or, or relevant, but you really, you really changed my mind. I really think there's some some interesting stuff in there with this whole White Walker thing, and it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. I hope Brienne gets to kill all the rest of them as well. Yeah, she's doing pretty crossed. good so far. It she's, might I be got... Sam. They're headed down to Old Town. It might be Sam. Sam, the, <laughs> Sam, you know, Sam the Slayer could kill Earthwick. I would be fine exactly. with that. I would be fine with that, but but Brienne already uh, already got Shagwell, Pig, or Pip, whatever his name is, and uh, uh, was it Timian? Yeah, so Shagwell, Pig, Timian. She got. Um, I guess Gendry technically got Biter. Gendry technically got but Biter, helped. but she got Rorge, and and she, she, also she definitely got, helped to get Biter as well. Yeah, she also got Vargo Hope because she bit him on his ear when he yeah. was trying to be yeah. evil to her, and then like that got infected. So she has single-handedly taken out most of the brave companions who are named. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's she's the, she's the other to them. Yeah, the great um, Brienne Boogeyman. Good for yeah. her, honestly. Fuck yes, those guys. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but to your point around like the brave companions being not especially interesting, just because there is this symbolism here does not absolve George of the responsibility for potentially using Orientalist stereotypes oh, in yeah. their characterization. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just because like I do this a lot, I go way, way deep on the symbolism and be like, look at all these like interesting like things that are going on. Like ableism is a huge part of the broken man or like Losing the ability to walk is a huge part of the broken man motif. And I'm mm. like, look at all the last hero symbolism with this. But like, it doesn't, like, he still desexualizes people who are disabled. He still, like, uses quite a lot of ableist motifs in there. Same here, like, he still uses a lot of orientalist motifs. So just because the symbolism is there does not mean that we sh- can't or shouldn't critique yeah. uh, stereotypes that may not be the best. Yeah, I suppose to bring it all around to the way that I read them, the way that you read them, in the process of, obviously, if you're going to make them parallels to the others, you have to other them in some some sense. It's just unfortunate that the sort of the strategy of othering that he went with is this kind of idea of the the grimy, mm-hmm. evil Eastern, you yeah. know, uh, no good, evil people from across the sea. Exactly. Uh, Ob- yeah. But then again, I always feel like when you talk about George R. Martin, it's like caveat upon caveat of things. Because obviously, Gregor Clegane's lot is not any better than than yeah. them. And then some of the worst ones, like Septon Utt and Kyburn are Westerosi. But it's, it's yeah. still, it's not, you know, I guess you could say at least they're not racist. 
They're a very diverse group, so good for them. <laughs> I feel like they're a lot more diverse than the White Walkers. They probably they don't discriminate between who they make whites. I wonder if they. That's a rabbit. We shouldn't get down that rabbit hole. Yeah, we've, we've always almost made it to make it a perfect sixty minutes. I don't want to destroy yeah. that by okay. getting that. So, uh, as I said, thank you so much for for coming on. I believe you mentioned a website of yours. Imagine um, you want to repeat where people can find that website, yeah. so I can put it in the description. So my website is redmiceatplay.wordpress.com. You can find some of my essays there. I've been on a hiatus since like this time last year because plague times do not are not conducive <laughs> for me being able to like physically mm. do essay writing apparently. Uh, so, um, but I am working on an essay. I have gone back to it recently. Mm. It's a continuation of the broken motif, um, but this time looking at broken women. Um, and hopefully, like that should be coming along reasonably soon for me, as like probably next year. Soonish, but yeah, like yeah. that's uh, well, good, good. Soon is relative, but yeah. Redmiceatplay.wordpress.com. You can find my essays there and the essays from Bronsteris that I mentioned uh, throughout this podcast, all available. And there. you, you can find my podcast wherever you're listening to it right now, because you obviously already found it. So there's no real point in plugging it, <laughs> but it is called Through the Moon Door. And I am Yogi, a.k.a. Archmaster Buzzkill. This is my esteemed colleague, Archmaster Emma. The conclave is adjourned for another day. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And happy Halloween. And goodbye.